Hello and welcome to the show. My name is Alexander Schmieding and you're listening to From Vision to Creation, a podcast that dives deep into the minds of visionaries who pursued their passions and made their visions a reality. On each episode, we will have conversations with entrepreneurs, artists, industry leaders, and business owners, and we'll explore the mindset that fueled their desire to take their dreams from vision to creation. This podcast is brought to you by Proper Placement, a full-service marketing agency that can help promote your business through social media marketing, paid advertising, email marketing, and more. Find out how we can help grow your business at properplacement.com. At Proper Placement, we don't have clients. We have partners. Welcome to another episode of From Vision to Creation. I'm your host, Alexander Schmieding, and today we have the honor of introducing you to a remarkable individual whose life journey is a testament to the enduring legacy of craftsmanship and the power of passion. Colin Stair, the fourth generation of a renowned family steeped in the world of antique furniture, has carved his own illustrious path in the world of arts and auctions. From the outset, it was clear that Colin's destiny was intricately entwined with the world of antiques. Growing up amidst the whispers of history and the elegance of fine craftsmanship, Colin's roots in the antique furniture business run deep, serving as a constant source of inspiration. Before he embarked on his journey with Stair Galleries, Colin Stair honed his expertise working with the prestigious Sotheby's, a name synonymous with excellence in the world of fine art and auctions. It was here that he not only refined his understanding of the art world, but also honed his exceptional eye for detail, a quality that has become his signature in the industry. Colin's passion and talent soon propelled him to establish Stair Galleries, a remarkable auction house renowned for its commitment to preserving and showcasing the finest pieces of history. His vision transcended the ordinary, breathing new life into antique treasures and creating a bridge between the past and the present. But Colin Stair's impact doesn't end at auctioneering. He has graced some of the most iconic halls in the United States, collaborating with institutions as revered as the White House, the U.S. Capitol, and the United Nations in New York. His work has not only preserved history, but also breathed fresh life into these hallowed spaces, igniting the imagination of those who walk through their doors. Colin Stair's journey is a testament to the enduring power of passion, dedication, and a deep respect for the heritage that surrounds us. Join us as we delve into his extraordinary story, one that serves as an inspiring beacon for those who dare to follow their dreams and transform vision into creation. Thank you so much for being here, Colin. My it's, pleasure, Alexander. I've been Thanks. really excited for this. I read that you are the fourth generation in your yeah. family to be in, in, you know, involved in furniture. Yeah, um, in the art and antique business, yeah, in general. Can you tell me about the, your first experience with furniture that made you realize that you loved it and that you wanted to pursue a career in it? Well, I, I guess we just kind of grew up at the dining table, kitchen table, living room, every place talking about it. It was a major subject at our house family functions and otherwise talking about the trade and the international trade of art and antiques. Um, my grandfather was a, was a sizable dealer as well as, uh, 
you know, his father before him. So I guess it's just very, very early it was there. And I guess my earliest recollection was when my father moved to Sotheby's uh, and ran their L.A. Um, showroom in, in just outside of Beverly Hills where we lived for a short time. And that's where I remember things the most all sort of coming together in the house that we lived in there and being surrounded by beautiful things. I was about six years old. And one of the things uh, that he did was clear out the back lots of 20th Century Fox objects, props, oh, wow. things. And they also bought antiques in the old days. So they would have Herder Brothers furniture, Tiffany lamps, antique stuff, and then models from movies and war movies made. And there was just this plethora of material always around from that. And then, you know, back moving back to New York and why do we have this racing Mercedes in our garage for two weeks? You know, and we, I, then when my father became a private dealer um, and did things on his own with a company called Landrigan and Stair, you know, you'd come home and all the furniture would be gone because they decided they were going to sell it. And, you know, they somebody needed a sideboard and a dining table and a set of chairs, so they sold it. So um, I guess, you know, early on I, I was sort of aware of it. When I actually got to touch it and figure it out, I was 18 and bought and restored a mirror and sold it and bought a motorcycle. And I thought, okay. <laughs> You're like, oh, I can yeah. see myself doing yeah, this. <laughs> I, 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 I love the stuff and I had some attachment to it and I felt natural, I guess, as it does today. And you moved to London to work at Sotheby's. Yeah, yeah. I, well, I worked at Sotheby's in New York. And uh, when I was 20, um, somebody thought enough of me to think, let's invest in this person. Uh, let's send him to London and Sussex, which is in the south of England, where Sotheby's had a sales room. And I worked there, sort of what I call general dog's body person. You know, I did a little bit of everything, cataloging furniture, helping catalog logistics. But then those days you'd catalog furniture, then you'd pick it up and move it to the next pile, to the next place, you'd work on it. You know, so it wasn't unusual for you to do everything then. Help on the photo shoot, photography, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So... So you got to learn a little bit about everything working well, there. including running an auction house. So that having that experience of working at the Sotheby's Sussex, which is this little outpost of the Sotheby's small auction house, it was like a building like this, but on a country estate with sheep surrounding it. And it was an old school. So we had a gymnasium where we had auctions and there was a fish antique fishing tackle area and a rug department. And there was dogs that was running around. It was just really a lovely place to work. And so you worked for Sotheby's for about 15 years. Yeah. And then at, at some and then you re, in 2001, you think, hey, I can do this on well, my own. Yeah, I kind of got pushed out of the nest because Sotheby's was having some problems financially and, and they were just doing a restructuring. And I found a way out. And my boss at the time was like, look, there's probably going to be an opportunity for somebody. And I'd always talked about this idea of starting an auction house in Hudson or working and doing that um, with my father, in fact. And, uh, we had talked about it. We'd looked at spaces. We tried to convince Sotheby's to do it in the 90s. Like, why don't you run and move your low-end business here? You know, things are between $500 and $20,000. You don't have the expense of doing it in the city. It's an important part of the estate world and how you, you know, not everybody has just Monet, 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 Monet on the right. wall and a Picasso. They have a sideboard, a set of silver, a group of things you have to service the entire estate. And I, I just saw the writing on the wall, and I knew there was going to be interest at that moment in time. And so, uh, yeah, I hung out my shingle in uh, May 31st, 2001. Um, but I also bought the Sotheby's restoration business from them, the building, the materials. So I kept, in, kept my day job, which was running Sotheby's restoration in the 90s, and started the auction house. But uh, and I still run that restoration business on a very small scale today. 
So when you started your own business, you had already you had purchased the business from Sotheby's. Yeah. You were doing that as a day job to grow your auction your business. own business. I see. So somebody that worked for me had moved back to England. I hired him back. He took over running what is now Stair Restoration, a very capable guy called Nigel Thomas. And I started this business with three or four people. And it was really hard work. Still is very hard work, but uh, totally satisfying and interesting. You know, our first auctions... We used to rent the Elks Club around the corner, and we'd move everything in on a Thursday, have an exhibition Friday, sell it Saturday, move out Sunday, because it was $800 to rent the Elks Club for four days. Oh, wow. And we'd move in after they finished playing bingo and the, clear the place out and get the smoke out of there. And, you know, went from bingo to auctions. And uh, somebody liked it so much that they bought the building and tried to steal our business and start their own auction house there. But... Uh, they didn't have very good taste and they're out of business in two years. So, but yes, it was a scary time in Hudson trying to find a space. And I, I love that you kept, the way you, I love that you phrased that, that you kept your day job to build your business yeah. because I think that especially when you're a young entrepreneur, you're first, you're first just starting off um, in business, you wonder what if my business doesn't make it? What if I can't grow this to what it needs to be to be sustainable? So yeah. do you think that that gave you, would that give you the confidence to take that? Leap? I never knew that. I just, I didn't think of it that way then at all. I just thought I can't give up this really viable business that I'm passionate about because, you know, there is this great feeling you get from saving something, restoring something, bringing it back from ruins. At Sotheby's, I worked uh, at the White House, the Capitol, um, multiple museums, uh, house museums, and it was so very, very rewarding. You know, there's just not a lot of money in it. Yeah, I've never met a rich restorer, or you know, it's a struggle. It's hard work. Um, we were very fortunate enough when we also started to receive a commission from the United Nations, and we went on for five years to restore the interior woodwork of all the Mies van der Rohe designed uh, interiors at the United Nations in uh, in New York. So. You know, that came along a few years later, but, you know, we were, we had a few clients that stuck with us. One of them was Ann Getty in San Francisco. Um, so she was sort of on board as our best client day one at Stair Restoration. So that was exciting. And many other really great American families that, uh, that really looked after us and really helped us. And we're just loyal. Great. You know, you can't do this without patrons. You need those patrons that collect, that need things restored, maintained. Things need to be looked after. So we're really lucky to get that. That's fascinating, Colin. You know, like opportunities, like getting to work with Ann Getty, the White House, United Nations. How did you? Yeah. How, how did you guys come across these opportunities? Did they find you? Uh, they really did. I'm not really much. I don't do much business on the dance floor, as my grandfather <laughs> used to call it. You know, who was out four nights a week with all of his clients. Um, it's just more word of mouth, and we get this opportunity or a phone call, and we just react to those opportunities and. Uh, I, I don't know, I'm just, we're just really just been very lucky, you know. Um, we, we also provide a really good service and a reliable, really good service. And if you want to get the entire contents, you know, this came about very quickly for Skanska, which was running the renovation for the United Nations. They needed an answer in three weeks. But could you do wow. this project that went on for five years? And, you know, we were in negotiations and discussing things with them, and they were talking about things, and we were on our phones under the table what does this mean? Like, what are they talking about? And we're Googling, you know, so I think we're pretty short-footed, you know, and uh, 
it's not me here. It's the sum of all the parts and all the people here that work so hard, whether it's our five, six-man crew that goes out and picks up these estates and moves all these things, or our specialists that are here that, that work with us and understand the objects, and we have a killer staff that does literally everything else. And to me, not one job's more important than the other. It's all, it's all important, everything. And I keep my finger in the pulse of a lot of it during the course of a day. And I'm really glad that you brought up that experience about, you know, working with the United Nations and you guys are texting under the table, like, what does this mean? Because you have to have a willingness to jump in sometimes, even when you don't feel, or you don't know if you're ready. You just have to have that willingness to jump in. And And it's like the opportunity, you're talking about the United Nations, every major architect and the Rockefellers built this at a certain period of time. And who doesn't want to put their name on and the work that's being done there and something you could show your children or people and talk about and, it's just incredibly exciting. You know, we regilded once at Sotheby's Restoration all of the picture frames in the um, rotunda at the Capitol, the U.S. Capitol. Oh, so wow. everything, and, and you know, and when I saw all the insurrectionists there in the Capitol, I was like, don't touch the frames. Don't touch <laughs> the paintings, please. <laughs> you know, it was a strange moment, and uh, hopefully nothing like that ever happens again, certainly. And, uh, and ditto with the United Nations. Again, just really exciting to work there. So... Saying yes, you know, we just had lunch with uh, one of our interns. It was just fabulous. And we're like, you got to be just heat-seeking missile for opportunities and seeing things. And, uh, you know, just saying yes and being open to trying things and talk to people about stuff. I absolutely love that. And you mentioned earlier about, you know, keeping your finger on the pulse of everything that's going on in your business. Yeah. How many many employees do you have? It's about 25 people here. Yeah. And uh, all we spend money on is people. You know, the building is here. It's taxes, basic stuff, but it's all about the people inside. So that's our biggest spend. 80% of our spend of our budget is for people. And uh, it's just great to have all these fabulous people here. People say that, but I mean, we have people that are 25 to 65. I think most days we all really get along and we have a good team spirit and uh, God help you if you don't pull your weight. <laughs> so I hear about it, you know, so I'm excited to kind of every day here. And I'm not surprised that, you know, you guys all get along so well, even though there's a huge range in the age yeah. age difference, because yes. you guys are coming together. You guys all have a fascination for and antiques, collectibles. And what systems do you have in place um, to keep your finger on the pulse when your team is so large? Yeah, interesting. Just communication. Mm. You know, it's like the old nursery rhyme. The more we get together, the happier we'll be. <laughs> so the more we talk, the more we communicate. In person, we have an open office, so people in there. It makes people a little crazy sometimes if somebody's, you know, going on too loud. But everybody kind of has a sense of what the other person's doing. They tend to know what the problems are, so their sensitivity and can react to like, okay, we're photographers out with a bad back this week and the other one's on vacation. So, you know, we're not going to do any photography this week. It's just, that's the way it is, you know, and everybody knows that, you know, um, trying to keep people apprised of what direction we're going in. So we had weekly meetings with everybody, certainly during the pandemic, and just keeping everybody involved in every little bit of nitty-gritty and what we're up to, what we were doing. That was that made a huge difference, I think. But I think I could greatly improve on communicating, and I could also greatly improve by taking some of my fingers off of those pulses mm. and trying to be like, okay, you, you'll take care of this, and you'll take care and then, But... Uh, you know, I like to know how the cloth is made and how to pick the thread and see where the shirt lies and where the jacket lays on top. I like to know how the clothing's made, but I, I can't cut all the fabric is what I'm learning. 
and I can't sew it all together. So um, stick to what you're good at too. You know, know your weaknesses. I know what my weaknesses are. Um, I have a built-in financial intuitive sense. Like I can feel the feel my account in my checkbook. <laughs> High, low, do we have any money? What's happening? Um, and I've gone out and started other businesses as well at the same time. So I've never met somebody really successful that just did one thing. Right. You know, so they have real estate or they're something. And they're in the art business. My people tend to be real estate and art. But um, other people, and certainly our clients, I find where they're really well diversified and have people they trust. And I just have people that I trust emphatically here doing those things. So you're the fourth generation in your family. Mm, yeah. Your great-grandfather started the yeah, first business, was. which was Stair and Andrew yep, in, in and, 1911 and, in London. Yeah, yeah. So, but it sounds like you started your business from scratch. So this wasn't a family yeah, business that was passed no, down. No, my, my great-grandfather was high retail in Soho in London selling important English furniture. Uh, war broke out, like a lot of people went off to war, you know. Uh, they came back, they worked um, very hard sold the business to his son, my grandfather, um, Alistair Arthur Stair. He then took it and expanded it to New York City in 1937 while well, he's still working for his, his father. Um, and my, my great-grandfather loved New York, and I think there's a newspaper article like he had more transatlantic passages than anybody else at the time from going back and forth, so filling his stores on 57th Street in New York City. And then my grandfather took it and ran with it after the war, really. And uh, he worked at Grumman building airplanes during the war at night, and then also uh, was, uh, you know, working for his father in New York. And, and then he bought the business from his father. And then my grandfather sold that business uh, in 1985 to David Murdoch, who owns the Regency Club in LA, the Island of Lanai, a towel company. I can't think of the name. So he, he, he got out of the business. And he and my father didn't always get along in business. And my father, I worked for my father at Sotheby's Restoration for 10 years. And we got along, but it was it was tough. Mm. It was really hard. So, um, yeah, when I started this business, I uh, just chose to go my own way, do my own thing. We, only thing we had in common was the same last name, really. And I grew up going to antique shows, seeing my father be a dealer, see the trade. All of our friends were dealers, the decorators, the coming. So I was constantly immersed in that world. Um, and people knew me from working at Sotheby's and Sotheby's Restoration. So a uh, bit of a reputation there. But no, I, I cleaned out my house and I sold all the furniture in my house. I sent it to my friend at Northeast Auctions, Ron Bourgeau. Did a fabulous job. And uh, very fortunate that we had a successful sale. And then uh, against everybody's advice, I cleaned out my 401k plan. And six months later, the economy tanked and I lost more than half the value of what was left there. So I was like, I'll pay the taxes, fine. And I didn't take any partners. So I've always been able to go alone. So I started this on a very much a shoestring budget. Um, I got a little severance from Sotheby's, which softened things for me a little bit. I was 32. I had two kids, both young. Uh, my wife had just gotten breast cancer. And it was like, oof, this is going to be a heavy couple of years. But uh, we managed to pull it together. And it's really also to her credit that uh, her support, you know, was never like, when are you coming home? What are you doing? What's going on? You know, it was like, do you need me to bring you dinner? Do you need lunch? Can I do anything to help? You know, and uh, my daughter helped. Who was in her junior high school, high school years then, so she got sort of forced into the family business there for a <laughs> while. So it was really not not easy. And we have this big, beautiful building with these sales now, and it was not always like this. It was a rental hall. You know, renting a microphone. <laughs> you know, two thousand one was very different. But we also did something that nobody else did: is we published catalogs online. 
And I told oh. everybody I was going to do this, and they're like, you're out of your mind. You don't know how to publish catalogs. And I just, plain old fake it till you make it. And I met this old Australian guy, and he had a way to do it. And I met this other weird guy who worked at IBM who helped me in the beginning. And then I met a software engineer who got his PhD from my stepfather, who was a psychologist and a professor in the New York uh, State school system. And uh, we cobbled the whole thing together, and we built this online catalog, and we emailed it out you know, in 2001, which it's 22 years ago, a very different animal emailing a yeah. catalog. And I look back at it now and I go, oh God, this is like dreadful looking, you know, how it's evolved, <laughs> this pale green background, but it worked. It really, really worked. And we uh, had fabulous consigners for our first auction. And that's, that's how we got started that way. But, uh, and it was a friend of mine who was this very dramatic French fellow. It was like, it was the Chateau de World in the auction business. <laughs> okay. But, uh, you know, it was it was fun. And did the online catalog work right away? It worked right away, except um, when we had a few reserves, they mistakenly published the reserve in the catalog, which is the information the auctioneer keeps confidential. Oh, no. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> I remember the catalog going live in the basement, and I'm looking at it at my house, and I'm oh, my God. And I go, oh, my God. <laughs> we just have to change this. And, uh, you know, we've tweaked it so many times since then, and we have a whole new robust software system. And now we do our own online bidding through our website and lots of other, so it's changed. It's changed a lot, and the technology really has been a friend of ours. And, and that's really cool that you guys that you weren't even sure if the online catalog was going to be a success or received yeah. well, but you still you took a risk and you spent time and you did it yeah, anyway. At this time, you know, our the president of Sotheby's in the '90s and um, I guess early about late '90s was a woman called Dee Dee Brooks, and um, I was just fascinated by her, and I thought she was just so smart and so intuitive and believed in me. And she, it was her idea to send me to England to train for a while. And uh, she might not have been as loved by everybody that worked there, but um, I'll always be grateful to her. Bill Ruprecht, who was her then number two, who then became the number one at Sotheby's, who I worked for, um, the co-chairman, Bill Stahl. I, I had great support, just great support there. And when I started my own business, like, let us know what we can do to help you. We need, you know, a lot that they can do, but like, okay, maybe there's a consignment that we can't help with. We could refer this business to you or a piece of advice. And I guess so I got some great advice, including becoming an auctioneer, which is something I'd never done before. And um, and I had some this great woman called Rebecca Hoffman who helped me start this business. And uh, we had a we had a great time doing this in the early years. Lots of fun. So it sounds like you had a lot of support in business and at home too. I, I you know, I've always been so uh, lucky to have people, and I don't know why, um, that support us. Like, they'll think of us, hey, Colin, I thought of you about doom to doom you know, uh, how about this? And sometimes it's doable, sometimes not. But yeah, I mean, having this base of people that uh, are supportive somewhere over here is Stephen Blutall, who's helping us with the Andre Leontali exhibition and cataloging. And, you know, he worked at, the, at, at a museum situation in the city for a long time. And um, he's here helping us with that whole thing. So again, another person supporting. But what we do is, I think, so interesting to people. You know, you, 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 when I when I hire people, I'm like, you're going to either like the consigners the, or the buyers, right? The people, very interesting. We're deep in the peopling business here. Or you're going to really love um, the money part of it because a lot of money trades hand, 
quick, quickly. You know, mm-hmm. on the other side of this wall is a piece of furniture that we sold to someone in China for a million dollars sitting here. And just out of the blue on a Thursday afternoon at 2.30 in Hudson, New York, <laughs> you know. You know, so there's a rush there that happens, you know, and then there's the stuff, right, which is so interesting. Uh, top to bottom for me, I'm passionate about it. I could feel it in the pit of my stomach and the top of my stomach. And it just, it makes all the flashbulbs go off for me. Looking at, it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, this Ralph Rucci, you know, gown that's here or a 17th century pair of chairs upstairs that are the earliest chairs I've ever seen made out of mahogany or a piece of Dutch Delft that's upstairs that looks like, and look going through Ann Getty's furniture this morning was getting unloaded from trucks. It's just the coolest thing ever. No, it's fascinating. And one thing that really blows my mind and that I'm always very curious about in collectibles is pricing and perceived value Mm. because you need to have a lot of knowledge about what it is that you're looking at to make sure you're not getting ripped off by yeah you know you got to trust in this world and Mm -hmm. in this business you have to trust somebody yes um and i think um auctioneers make a ton of mistakes and there's a lot of dealers out there that go i think that's a so-and-so and and this auctioneer is like us that said european school because we're not sure so we take this stance that a lot I, I do anyhow i think we as a, a general rule um if we're not sure we say we're not sure and if we don't know we say we don't know and then we let the market decide but if you're going to say this is a print by ellsworth kelly and this is a robert indiana sculpture well then you better be very sure of it mm. you know we have a very important collection of american 20th century art upstairs late 20th century that was given um, and traded by an artist that we're selling in a state man called Donald Batchelor was great painter started in the 80s he was just friends with artists and there's a uh, Ed Ruscha small Ed Ruscha hanging in my office there's a little Keith Herring painting upstairs and he traded other artists for these works I don't have a certificate for it but it's like the story tells the story but there's there's now really a specialist for just about every field so people look for letters of authenticity, and you know, I, I would say that's a that's a great idea if you can do it and you have the time for it. But we sell twenty five of us that work here, and we sell ten thousand lots a year. Well, can, so, can you explain what a lot is? So yeah, a lot can be one item, a chair, or a lot can be on the other side of the wall. We're going through a photography collection. It could be ten lots of photography, all relating to travel in the Pacific in the twenties or teens. So a lot is the object that will say lot number one is this mirror. Lot two is this group of photography. It's just what we refer to it as uh, in the auction vernacular. And, you know, we use this old language. We use this old English language in this business. Then we use these terms that nobody else uses. It gets confusing for people. Um, I kind of credit eBay with making the auction place like more commonplace. Because people are like, oh, you're having an auction like eBay? And I was like, well, yes, but there's a podium and there's people and, you know, and then, you know, there's the internet bidding as well. But um, that really changed the way things work as well. And how did the pandemic impact on a bidding in person versus online? Yeah, you know, I sat right there and Walter, who was our IT guy, sat back there. And then I had this screen up here and people would teams call in and they'd have somebody on the phone and somebody would be operating a bidding terminal somewhere else, and somebody would be operating a bidding terminal somewhere else in their house, and we did the whole thing remotely. And we probably did $10 million and $15 million in business that way, and people were sitting around with extra money, nowhere to go, 
no private jet travel, no restaurants, no hotels. Mm. And they just, they, they, people bought a fair amount of stuff. Oh, so you saw an increase in your business yeah, during we went the pandemic. 25%. Wow, now, that's incredible. We had a lot of catching up to do because we didn't have any sales for six months. And, you know, this business gobbles money and we didn't let go of any of our staff. Mm-hmm. So we kept everybody on payroll. Throughout the entire pandemic. The entire pandemic. We let go of one person in the restoration business because that was just zero. You know, nothing. But we had had all this stuff here. It was actually the estate of Mario Boada, who's a very famous decorator. And we had the sales waiting to go in a silver sale and a Chinese sale. And we just, just made it. And uh, I will always be grateful for that first PPP loan because it just, it's, we were just like the end of whatever money we had and that kicked in wow. and that, that literally saved us the sales from the estate of Mario Boada and the PPP loan just gave this business just enough bounce to stay alive and get up and running again. Whatever intuition I had said, don't let anybody go. It'll be impossible to build this team back. That's a really important lesson too. When things are getting tough at the, at the end of the day, your people like people that's, that's it. I mean, cause look how many people struggle and continue to struggle right. after the pandemic. I think maybe three or four people have gone out to do different things, but it's, it remains pretty in, intact. I think I think people everywhere were pretty grateful to have a, a paycheck and a job and people hanging in there. I don't want to do this again, though, Alexander. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I know, right? It is, <laughs> yeah, yeah it, it's it's changed everything in the way we do things. You know, so it's uh, this is challenging, challenging time. And so you had a lot of transparency into this industry before starting your own business. Yeah. Did it end up starting your own business though? Did it end up being what you thought it was going to be or is it completely different or what's been your experience? That, that's a good question. Um, it, it's just evolved all by itself. So I couldn't move the needle and I didn't see it going to where we are today. It's just completely changed how it's done, but uh, it's kind of worked out as I, I, I hoped it, it might. You know, but uh, I, I thought it would be very different. I didn't see the, the heavy technology coming and online bidding and people bidding that way. And, you know, there's a lot, there's a homogenization of American business, right? It's like in an ideal world, there's only 10 big super companies, right? And, you know, these bidding platforms sort of taken our sales and homogenize them and condense them into their bidding platform. And it's just the stuff we're selling through them where I'm big on having my own identity, own business, um, but I appreciate what they do on the other hand, but you, it's a, it's a push and pull, you know, you can't lose your own identity for what we do here. Right. You know, cause we tell a really interesting story about every estate and every consigner and who the people are and how they collected these things. And this, I've seen everything the stories of families holding onto things and leaving countries with these 12 spoons and, you know, you sort of, you name it, you know, it's, it's very, uh, very, very interesting, you know, working with the people that are consigning and selling these things. And how do you choose the next collection that you're going to sell? Is that another one of those things where you, they choose you or do you? Well, they, they choose us to give us the opportunity to see if it's something we think we can uh, help them with and if they think it's our market. And, you know, when you're going with a $50 million modern contemporary collection, you're probably going to call Sotheby's or Christie's first. But if you have a three, four, five hundred thousand dollar collection or somebody interesting, you might think of us first. Um, so it they sort of choose us. I don't, you know, I don't. There's some in this business that will be like, you know, they'll read an obituary and say, oh, I've got to be in touch with that person. I'm going to say, with the exception of writing a, you know, if I knew the person, I knew their family, writing a card and saying, so sorry to hear about so and so. 
I don't, you know, I don't chase that kind of business. It kind of, we've been very lucky that it comes to us. So if I had a spirit animal, it would be a flounder, you know, <laughs> big flat one eye open looking for its next meal to go by, as I always tell people. Yeah. And then we look at the material and think, gosh, is it kind of chic looking? Is it interesting? Um, is it pedestrian? Is it marketable? This is what people kind of want today. There's a lot of what, you be very careful, you know, because um, there's certain things people just don't care about anymore. Um, so we've got to be very careful about picking those things. Like, like French antiques, for example, right? That used to be... Yeah, they're, they're you know, um, I mean, I worked on some of the greatest French furniture in America, and that market is 70% off, 80% off in some cases. Really? That yeah, high? Yeah. And same with English furniture and American furniture. Top tier of the market's doing just fine, though. You could have a piece of royal French furniture and probably sell it for $5 million or 5 million pounds today because it's just rare, rare, rare. So the scarcer and rarer, the better better you are at the high end of the market. And what do you do to stay competitive with the, with the bigger companies like Christie and Sotheby's? Do you, what, what differentiates do, your business? I don't compete with, with those guys, luckily. I mean, I have in a couple, <laughs> a couple of consignments. They've been on and we lost one recently. And I'm like, first of all, if I, if I can get in the ring and go around or two with the two biggest auction houses in the world, which again, this only happens every once in a while, I'm happy to be invited to the party, right? Um, but, you know, the other regional houses, and uh, I, I, we get a 20, 30, 40% lift here in value. If I look at one auction here versus another auction with similar material elsewhere, I think our taste, our exhibitions, our photography, our layout, our care, passion, we just can, and then people, sometimes they just want to pay less commission because, you know, the seller pays a commission, the buyer pays a commission, and that's how we create income here. And there's a lot of people that will do this for a lot less. Mm. So I charge a little more because we develop, deliver a lot more um, of a regional house. I don't know if anybody else has as much expertise as we have here in the paintings and decorative arts. So we have a tremendous amount of expertise. And I've never said to my best plumber or lawyer, can you do better? I'm talking to somebody else and they can, I've just, bizarre to me, you know, and people want to always talk about how much commission we would charge to sell. But I'd ask, what is the auctioneer going to do for you? Right. Step by step by step. And the smart ones are like, okay, oh, you said you do an ad in the New York Times, put all that in your contract, line it all up, let us see it. You know, I think we just outtaste people, you know, and uh, everything we do, whether it's a group shop and or advertising or Instagram, we're small numbers here. We have 13,000 people opted in to get our catalogs. We have 10 or 12,000 people following us on Instagram. It's not, it's by design, small by design, I guess, small by design. And lots of people look at us and I'm always surprised. And a big brand just approached us to do something like, you know, a Coke, Pepsi type in the art business thing. And I probably don't want to do it because <laughs> I like the small, there, maybe there's a way to do something with them but I have no interest in growing this business any bigger. You know, if a piece of Fabergé wanders through here and we could sell it for $5 million, great. <laughs> but I don't want more people. I don't want to add more categories. Um, Hudson doesn't hold up to like get into the handbag business. You know, that's very New York centric. Um, we're getting better at jewelry. We're really great at modern and contemporary here at Stair. Um, we're good at these celebrity and theme sales, you know, small. Interesting people, Joan Didion, one of the most interesting sales we've ever had. Um, and watching the people react to that sale was fascinating. Um, we're good at these, what we call single owner sales. You know, that's, you tell, talk about a lifestyle, 
you talk about a client and how we do that, how we broadcast that information and the taste, you know, there's the, the word of stay or we call it. And like, you got to get the language just right and keep it consistent. And, and just having that same level of taste across all your social media platforms and keeping that taste level similar and feeling alike is super important. When you're putting together a collection, you want to make the people that are going to be purchasing the collection feel like they're going to be living oh, the same lifestyle. Yeah, yeah. So we call them lifestyle sales a lot of times also. So it's like, oh my God, I'm like got Joan Didion's notebooks and I've got her books. And, and look, I fall for all this stuff. And I'm going to have talismans from all the great collectors. And I can walk you around my house. I'm like, that was Cynthia Phipps' sofa. It was in her living room. Da, da, da. This sofa's by Henry Chang. This belonged to this person. This, I mean, I know everything. So it's important to people like us. And we use this word called provenance. It sounds like Provence, but it's provenance. And it's the history of where something has been. And you know, your partner is a collector. So yes. if it was an X collection, ooh, it gets, gets sexier. So-and-so touched it and had it. And it was good enough for them. You know, I had a client once buy a very meager cabinet that belonged to Coco Chanel, estimated 20 to 30,000. And she paid $380,000 for it. Whoa. And uh, she's like, well, plunked Coco Chanel. I was like, you don't have to tell me. This makes, <laughs> this makes sense to someone like yes. me. It's only the other people that might think we're a little odd. So, you know, that, that's, that's an important part of things is, is provenance. And we also understand the his, history of this building and the history of the, the things in this building and the people that collected them beforehand. And you see a label on the back of a painting and they go, oh, that label, they were the successors to that turned into Nodler galleries and Goupil made the artist board for these painters. Therefore, this could be this. So we look for these links and threads to tell the story, which is fascinating. And what advice would you give to somebody who feels called to build a business doing this, this line of work? Attach yourself to somebody who knows what they're doing and don't leave until they ask you to. Mm. you know, apprentice, volunteer, work, or be paid, you know, get a job inside of an auction house. And uh, you, you just, you, you got to like it and you got to like talking to the people. And you know, we deal with some, some you know, people a little, little out there sometimes. Um, so you, you've got to like working with the people, but really just find somebody who you could learn so much, you know, upstairs. I mean, look at all the plethora of material here from clothes to objects downstairs is just the one person. And you know, we have two other buildings full of stuff and Getty's furniture is all getting delivered to our 5,000 square foot, 6,000 square foot warehouse. It gets cataloged, photographed, um, a lot that goes into this business. And there's a lot of opportunity to learn. And people like me are looking for that person. Mm. We were finishing up lunch with our intern. Um, and that's what we were doing who worked here. And she's just a total savage. She's Got to be here and working on the Paul Newman sale and Joanne Woodward's sale. She helped catalog the photography. She worked on the photo shoot with Andre's clothes. So I was like, you got to hear it a good resume building time, I, I think, you know. So uh, I've met a lot of people that just like the auction business. And what are some of the most important lessons you've learned throughout your career? Mm. Uh, you know, you got to be honest with your buyers. Um, I don't make any promises you can't keep under promise in terms of like, I think this could make a thousand dollars and it makes $3,250. You'll have nothing to apologize for, <laughs> yes. you know, and tell people that when you, you know, promise the world and deliver the whole universe, if you can, like, you, you know, if you make a promise, you better keep it. You better stay uh, on time with that promise. Um, but 
don't promise, you know, I, I spend most of my time at a client's house going, I'm afraid that nobody just cares about this type of material. And while it belonged to your mother and it's a lovely version of whatever it is that we're looking at together, it's just not going to. So I just, honesty, just being absolutely dead honest. And I have people come to my house to provide services for one thing or another, a painter, a contractor, and, you know, schedule yourself. Just so I can't say I'm just so busy. You, yeah, see, I'm busy, but I can come September 23rd. Mm. Is that okay? Oh, the 24th? That, that works fine. It's just like, you don't get overwhelmed. It's all doable. It's all, can deal with it. You've just got to plan. And you got to surround yourself with smart people. You know, but uh, just not over-promising. And uh, just don't over-promise. Because at one time, we're, we're sitting here in the auction room, you've got to get in the podium. And for us, it's like it's where the rubber hits the road. You know, you tell somebody it's worth eight to $1,200. And sometimes you sell it for four hundred, half of that low estimate, and sometimes it makes three thousand two hundred fifty dollars. So just be very careful with your promise. And if you could go back in time and offer your younger self one bit of advice right before you started mm. uh, your entire career, what what would it be? Don't wait seven years to take a vacation. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, like you, you can. I've had some of my most successful years when I've taken a month off and gone to Mexico. You, okay. you, you know what I mean? So that, that is, and I literally really just made that up, but, uh, I, I wouldn't do a lot different. I just, I, I wouldn't change much except probably take more time off, you know? And that's, and that's really important because I feel like now a lot of people, especially in this country, pride themselves on being busy yeah. all the time. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. You need and the time I, I, I can fall prey to that. I'm having one of those kind of busy days, you know, then you go home and go, what did I do today? I I didn't write a contract. I didn't put estimates on things. I didn't research anything, but I just, all this busy work that has to be done and all these little boxes that have to be closed. I've enjoyed this thing. I enjoy, I also enjoy business. Like I enjoy financial forecasting now, which my CFO has got me hooked on. It's like crack. Mm -hmm. I love looking. I've always loved balance sheets, budgets. I like looking at costs. I look and I, and I look across those numbers and those numbers to me, they're people, they're things. What could you do with? What could you do without? Then the pandemic taught us like, how to evaporate 50% of your budget for all the stuff you don't need anymore. No more Hello Magazine. No more lunch delivered to the office three days a week. We didn't buy a pen, a pencil, a piece of paper. It's like um, it, it, that learning, learning that, knowing what you can do without when you have to. When it's it's funny that you say you enjoy the spreadsheets because so it sounds like you both sides of your brain are really working like the analytical a, side of things yeah. and then the creative side. I have a I have a I have a business streak inside of me that needs to be fed and that's very abstract to like my accountant makes no sense to him and CFO <laughs> just thinks I'm whatever we love one another but um, you know my my thinking and I have a higher risk reward receptor than others. You know, so I'm willing to take a risk on 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 things um, and take a chance because there's no guarantees at all that this will be successful. I mean, the next auction, the next thing, the next consignment, it's it's what keeps it so exciting, you know. But it gets it can be exhausting flying by the seat of your pants, as somebody yes. reminded me. So it's like like let's get a seat on the plane <laughs> and go for the ride, but it doesn't always have to be in the upside down. Right. Um, Which, you know, at 55, after you've done this on your own for, since I've started this business when I was 32, and it's, it's a, I'm a very different person. Yeah. You know, that, but that's, that's what it's like running a small regional auction house in America. Um, I'm told we're one of the top 20 in that world. I'm happy to be included in that number. I've never stopped to think about and made a list. 
you know. I love the auction business. I went on vacation to Scotland. I spent two days sitting in an auction. My wife's like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I also went to a museum in the morning. I went to a pub in the evening. And, you know, so it's, it's Work great. Work-life balance. Yeah, yeah I, I, I love this stuff. It's exciting. And I like seeing the things and learning. And it takes five lifetimes to learn all this stuff. So it's exciting. And will there be a fifth generation in your family at Stairgallery? To be Stair determined. To be determined. We just have to see how that all shakes itself out. You know, um, my daughter went and got a great degree at Parsons for uh, design management and managing brands and as a social media strategist, which is, you know, we do a little bit of that here. My son's an engineer and a scientist. Not a lot of interest. Um, but we'll just, we'll see what happens. We'll just see what happens. But uh we have a few years left and a few tricks left and things are just getting more and more interesting here. So we'll keep, keep going. And where can people find you, find Stair Galleries well, and you know, keep up with what you're doing? We're still there at stairgalleries.com, which is the home where we have lived for 22 years and uh, a little bit of Instagram. You know, I have my own little small Instagram account, Stair on Stair, and I post things, you know, from my wedding vow renewals to a piece of furniture that I'm in love with, to you name it. And we have a pretty active presence on Instagram, but... Uh, the website, we publish stories and, you know, I love making all this stuff and I've got somebody, new people that are helping us create content and making these little stories about us. We recently did a feature on the auctioneers at Stair, so you could watch the four auctioneers other than myself and who they are, what they do, where they learned. And it's fascinating. That's great. And I'm going to go, I'm going to include the link to oh, your website you. and the handles in yeah, the description. Thank you. Thank you, Alexander. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your My time. Pleasure. Your yeah. time today, Colin. I, I feel really like I did a lot it. of talking. I hope you don't mind, but I'm still, I get really excited about this right to this very moment. You know, it, no, that's exactly what we wanted. Yeah, we wanted to hear yeah. every, all about it. And so. just you know what, I left that corporate job. I was making good money. I was living at the Mark Hotel. I think I told you this at dinner. I had a corporate card. I was making six figures. I was 31. I'm like, I could have maybe found another position inside of Sotheby's. Maybe who knows. But just do it. Just like drop it and go for it and just get out there, use the network with all those people and all those people you've talked to and met and they'll they'll help you. If they generally like you, they will help you. They will support you. And so I've gone to do the same thing for others. I, th I hope, I think, you know, that have been in this business. So it's it's exciting. Well, thank you very much, Colin. My I really pleasure. appreciate your time today. My pleasure. Good. I can't wait to visit you in L.A. Absolutely. I'm right. looking forward to that, too. All right. Thank you. As we conclude this illuminating conversation with Colin Stair, we are left with a profound appreciation for his unwavering commitment to preserving the beauty of history and the artistry of the past. Colin is a shining example of how passion can be the driving force behind transformative change. His tenure at Sotheby's, where he honed his skills and refined his eye for detail, was merely the beginning of a path that would lead him to establish Stair Galleries an institution dedicated to preserving and showcasing the timeless artistry of the past. What sets Colin apart is not just his ability to auction pieces of history, but his talent for reimagining spaces of immense historical significance. His collaborations with the White House, the US Capitol, and the United Nations in New York perfectly demonstrate his remarkable ability to blend the old with the new, creating spaces that resonate with a sense of timeless elegance. In Colin Stair, we find a true visionary who has turned his family's tradition into a dynamic force for change. His journey reminds us that when we follow our passions with unwavering dedication, we too can transform our visions into breathtaking realities. Thank you, Colin Stair, for sharing your inspiring story with us today. 
We look forward to seeing the beauty and history you continue to breathe into the world, reminding us all that the past is a living testament to the endless possibilities of creation.